The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Clinical Colloquia in Retinal Disease, Updating Evidence-Based Patient-Centric Care for Diabetic Retinopathy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash CMG 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is uh, Carl Rogello from Will's Eye Hospital and Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. Welcome to Clinical Colloquia in Retinal Disease, Updating Evidence-Based Patient-Centered Care for Diabetic Retinopathy. Topics we'll address in today's activity include recent advances in the management of DR and DME, and especially how these might impact the treatment burden for patients. Joining me in this discussion are Dr. Charles Wyckoff from Retina Consultants of Texas in Houston and Dr. Jennifer Lim from the University of Illinois in Chicago. Welcome, Jenny and Charlie. Hi, Carl. Great to be here. Well, great to have you. I'm going to kick things off with the first section. What are we asking of patients undergoing DR, diabetic retinopathy, and DME treatment? Let's start with the state of the art in terms of diabetic macroedema management, DME management. What's in the toolbox that we have to manage this condition? Well, we have individual VEGF blockade, of course. I think everyone knows now that that's first line therapy for managing DME. It's been proven to be the safest and most effective way to treat DME. But we have other treatments and other options uh, to offer our patients if need be. Intervitual corticosteroids, mainly considered second-line option, although there may be other scenarios. Laser photocoagulation, tried and true going way back in time, maybe for more refractory DME scenarios, or maybe for non-center-involving clinically significant diabetic macrodema. And then rarely we'll utilize vitrectomy. Uh, but that's particularly, um, uh, or maybe in rare scenarios in which there might be some vitro-retinal interface abnormalities contributing to or causing persistent DME. But by far and away, it's about anti-VEGF therapy, uh, frequent injections, and when you look back over time, it's evolved quite a bit in a really short time frame. Uh, Anti-VEGF for DME started in the mid to late, let's say 2006 or eight or nine time frame. Back then, it was all about focal laser, maybe a little steroid use, but as you look Uh, and go forward maybe just four or five years, it went from minority of patients getting intravitual injections of anti-VEGF and some steroids to the majority, far majority really. Um, About 75% of patients were getting focal laser circa 2009 for DME treatment. By the time it was 2014, it was down to only 25% uh, with a fair amount of steroid use, but again, mostly anti-VEGF. And that's really taken hold and and even captured a greater percentage of our patients being managed with DME to date. Um, interestingly though, we talk about anti-VEGFs as a class and the ones we've been using, the anti-VEGF drugs, bevacizumab, ranibizumab, aflibercept, mainly over the years, they all work well. We've got studies to show that, but it was actually the first disease state, diabetic macrodema, in which we also detected some differences in terms of efficacy between the drugs. And we'll get into that a little bit later when we talk about protocol T. So in that study, it was a flibercept that was found to be most effective in managing DME, particularly severe DME when there's decreased vision. Um, But over time, uh, there was uh, some 
additional benefits that uh, made those differences uh, smaller among the drugs themselves. So uh, over a year or two of therapy, um, again, these drugs all yield uh, very good clinical outcomes. But all these drugs, however, are also um, of limited durability. And so regardless of the drug that's used to treat DME, uh, it's going to require very frequent injections, especially in the first year or two, and very frequent office visits um, to monitor the response to disease and keep on top of um, uh, how the patient is doing. And this is not a cure, so it's not one, two years, it's four, five years or more. And many of these patients will have recurrent disease and need to be on therapy, at least intermittent therapy, over the long haul. But that first year in particular, very treatment intensive. Um, we're talking nine or 10 or more treatments on average um, to get the DME under control and get the best vision outcomes. And then of course, it's maintaining those outcomes over time. And that's when there's gonna need to be good compliance with follow-up, close follow-up, and uh, keeping on top of recurrent diseases. So although over time we may not need as many treatments, we're still going to need pretty regular office visits uh, to keep on top of this condition. Like with most of our retinal conditions, especially those that we treat with anti-VEGFs, such as wet AMD, it's similar. Better vision at baseline uh, correlates to better absolute vision outcomes. You start with earlier disease and better vision, you're going to end with better vision. And when the disease is more severe, so when you're talking about severe DME at, at baseline or presentation, it's highly likely uh, to need more frequent treatments and more total treatments along with more frequent office visits. It's going to be much more intensive management and probably a lot longer uh, to get the improvements those patients need over time. And unfortunately, less likely to get good vision outcomes when they start with very severe DME. And then there's... Uh, the notion or the importance of keeping up on all this. And that's when we really start to hit the challenges in clinical care. Uh, we know that, and there's lots now that's been published, and our own personal experience will show that when there's interruptions in uh, the treatment regimen, patients will have setbacks and they don't always recover from these setbacks, whether it be recurrent DME or maybe more advanced disease manifestations like when we get proliferative stages with vitreous hemorrhages and even traction retinal detachments. Um, these things are not entirely uh, or completely reversible. So how do we avoid losing patients to follow-up? That's key. Um, and uh, there's a lot of factors in uh, diabetic retinopathy management that uh, contribute to um, the poor compliance to follow-up that uh, studies have indicated and that we've all experienced in practice. These are typically a bit younger than our patients with macular generation, so they're often still working. Uh, it's very challenging for them to come to the office. They're managing a whole host of other medical problems and juggling a lot of doctors and a lot of medicines. And so uh, keeping on top of that, that's a, that's a challenging management scenario. So unfortunately, these patients frequently miss visits um, or go extended time frames without coming to the office, and they'll often miss the, the treatments that they need to keep their vision good. Again, there's a lot of factors that go into why these patients don't come as often um, or as prescribed, we'll say. Um, and it's, again, interfering with their schedules, 
illnesses and so forth. And uh, unfortunately, there's also been correlations with income. Um, so patients uh, you know, or groups of patients with lower income uh, tend to um, unfortunately be more inclined to, to miss appointments and, and that in turn also means more severe vision loss and poor vision outcomes, uh, unfortunately linked to lower uh, income groups. And then driving that point home, uh, we had recently and unfortunately still somewhat in the COVID pandemic. Um, and at the height of the pandemic, when uh, patients were scared to come to the office or felt that there wasn't an urgent need to come to the office, uh, they missed appointments. And uh, we saw this with injection treatment schedules uh, declining, uh, especially during uh, the, the height of the pandemic when there was effectively some lockdowns in place, both in the United States and internationally. And we saw patients that were lost to follow up or didn't come to the office uh, despite the need for their to get these injections, for example, anti-VEGF injections to manage their DME or their proliferative manifestations. And we unfortunately all saw examples of vision loss and some of that vision loss was permanent. So I want to bring up the concept of shared decision-making, SDM as it's known in the field, and how that might help prevent loss of follow-up in these scenarios and um, specifically exactly how and when should we be engaged in shared decision-making with our patients? Well, surveys clearly show that patients desire shared decision-making. They rather be part of the process and not just sitting back passively uh, hearing about what needs to be done. The question does, does SDM have an impact in uh, improving patient compliance and follow-up with the necessary care. When you look at ADA guidelines, they, they actually do mention SDM uh, as a vital and effective way uh, to manage uh, the, the problems associated with diabetes. But the American Academy of Ophthalmology, uh, there are guidelines, but they don't mention SDM. And I don't know if that's a surprise, and I'm going to ask Jenny and Charlie to, to comment all this. But of course, the AAO in our field recognizes the importance of engaging with our patients, uh, informing them, having them part of the process, even if they don't specifically mention SDM in the guidelines, um, and whether or not there's uh, effective tools at hand for us. Uh, I know I don't use specific SDM tools, um, but um, uh, we're going to hear from our experts in terms of whether or not we should be thinking about this as a way to improve compliance and improve outcomes for our patients. You know, it's not just one treatment. I mentioned already up front that there are four treatments effectively, but yes, mainly we're starting off with anti-VEGF for diabetic macroedema and so forth. But even then, there's decisions to be made and, and alternatives in the way we manage this condition. Do we use a continuous treat and extend? Do we use a PRN approach uh, to, to these injections? Well, I think that, that should take into consideration specific patients' needs and how it best suits their ability to uh, get the best vision outcomes. So I mentioned that there are tools and take, for example, this SDM Q9 tool. Now, I was not familiar with this tool until recently, um, but it really helps to engage and include the patient uh, in decision-making. And here's the form itself. Charlie and Jenny, have you ever seen this form? 
I have not, Carl. Uh, I, I like to think that I do use shared decision making uh, akin to what you showed there in my own way by asking the patients, you know, what is your ability to come into the clinic? Are you more inclined to want to come in every month perhaps, or would you like to try to space it out because of your work responsibilities or your income levels? So I think, you know, a lot of these other factors, just as you mentioned, really play an important role in helping that patient come to a decision as to what type of treatment they want. And also in some cases where they want a branded drug or whether they will go with a generic drug. Charlie, what about you? I agree with all the comments from both of you. And no, unfortunately, I've never seen this form before either. But I think that most retina specialists do what both of you are describing, and I try to also. We, we care about our patients at a very personal level, and our clinics are all busy, but it does matter. And I think everyone tries to connect with patients in their own way. I think it's pretty clear that those connections with patients really help solidify the long-term relationship. Right? Giving patients the opportunity to speak up when they have questions, when they have challenges, and using our extended team members to help make them feel comfortable, right? Just because they're asking questions doesn't necessarily need to be a scary thing for physicians, right? Make sure that you're deploying your support staff to go in and give all the information the patient needs. All the, all the education doesn't have to come from you as the physician. I think this often scares physicians and they think, I can't do this. I don't have time. But really look at your extended team members as sort of critical to educating and keeping the patients on the same page as you. And I also tell patients, you know, it's, it's, it can be overwhelming, especially the first visit and the first time they learn they have a problem with diabetic retinopathy. And I tell them, look, it's a lot of information to process. And this is a ongoing um, type of educational process. So we're going to have opportunities to ask more questions and engage more over time. And I just encourage them to stick with the program and uh, let me know how they're doing, uh, how their vision is and any challenges they have in getting to the office and getting the necessary treatments on board. And then talk about preferences over time. It's, it's, it's impossible to do this all in the first visit. That's for sure. That initial consultation. Uh, Jenny, you were going to say? Yeah, you know, I agree with everything you guys have said. And I really think it's a matter of building trust, having your patient build trust with you, trusting you with their care, trusting you, you know, that you're going to do the best they can, that you can to help them keep their vision. And I think in other fields in ophthalmology, like in glaucoma, back in 2009, Dr. Han wrote a paper on uh, shared decision-making in terms of improving compliance with taking glaucoma drops. And, you know, using sort of methods where you interview your patient, you ask him a question, then you tell him something, then you ask another question. You kind of build on this uh, uh, system where you kind of ask, tell, ask to get information from them. And you try to do this, as Charlie said, with a lot of empathy and try not to blame the patient for not being compliant, but rather help them come to a way to improve their compliance and to improve their care. Sorry, another part of it I think is critical is to bring in family members and friends. So it can absolutely be overwhelming the first, the second, the tenth time for patients. I really regularly encourage people to bring in family members, bring in friends, to ask questions. I encourage patients to write down their questions ahead of time so that when it's overwhelming, they can look at their paper and be reassured that they're getting their key questions answered. I think having multiple sets of ears hear the information and digest it over time really helps patients see the value and buy in long term. Well, these are all excellent comments, and I'm glad you shared them. And now we're going to hear from our patients. So we'll play the video of our patient being interviewed. My name is Leslie Mitchell. I am 45-year-old type 1 diabetic with diabetic retinopathy. 
I have two children and a husband. I've had diabetes for 40 years and I've had eye problems for six years. I was diagnosed with diabetes when I was five years old. I don't remember anything about it. I was lucky that my mother was a registered nurse. So she knew the signs and she took me to McDonald's and then took me to the hospital because <laughs> she knew. She bought me a milkshake and she took me to the hospital and she's like, your life is about to change. And it did. And then six years ago, so I was 39, six years ago, I finally went to go see a retina specialist. I had no symptoms, but every year that I would do my glasses or my contacts, they would say, there's some stuff in there. You need to go see them. And so then I looked up and I found Dr. Wyckoff, which was like the best luck I've ever had. And I just thought I was going to go to him and he'd say, your eyes look fine and come back in a year for another checkup. And instead he said, you have extremely severe um, diabetic retinopathy, DME, and I had no symptoms. I didn't, I didn't know. And that's how I found out. And a week after I saw Dr. Wyckoff, I had my first big bleed. And then I was like, oh, he was serious. I do have problems. I think it's really important that you evaluate every case as an individual. And I know they don't have time. Like, they see so many of us. But sometimes it's just taking that extra 30 seconds to listen to something that I say. Because Dr. Wyckoff remembers everything I've told him. I don't know how, but he does. And if you can just take those extra few seconds instead of, you know, it's already scary. The doctor's coming in, they're going to jab needles in my eyeballs and then just leave. And I, I, it's five seconds after they've walked out the door that I'm like, oh, I forgot to, I forgot to ask them this. I think it's to have, even if you're rushed and you're busy, it's important to open a line of communication with your patient because we're all different. We're all different people. We all live different lifestyles. And you have to understand that to us, you're the only one as a doctor. You're the only one I'm relying on. And although you're treating hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of us, I need to know that you're, you support me and that you're hearing the things that I'm saying. So now that we've listened to our patient, Jenny Charlie. How does this patient's diagnostic journey compare to your patients in practice? Well, Charlie, this is your patient, but all your patients and Jenny, yours too. I'll start. Yeah, you know, I think. It, okay, thanks, Jenny. I think I think it highlights one of the one of the shortcomings of of our system, right? I mean, this this is a patient that was being told repeatedly for it sounds like multiple years that she had a retina problem and yet never went to get care from a retina specialist, and so. I really think that you know it speaks to the point that a lot of patients in our country are not getting the screening that they need and deserve. And even when they do get screening, a lot of them are not getting the follow-up that they need and deserve. It really highlights the, the, the challenges in our society for optimal screening. And it really puts the burden on us as eye care professionals to do a better job, to get the word out better with, through programs like this, and to continue to educate patients that anybody they know with diabetes needs eye screening. Yeah, you know, I, I'll tell you, uh, this patient came with advanced disease, and I mentioned earlier, you know, you, you're already uh, behind before you even started, Charlie, with this patient. Um, she had proliferative disease, and uh, that's pretty late stage here. 
Uh, Jenny, how does this patient's experience with SDM compare with your practice? Carl, you know, that's an interesting question. I do have patients very similar to Charlie's who are very well informed about their disease and yet also present rather late in the disease process. On the flip side, I have a lot of patients who are not as well informed about their diabetes and come to me and they just say, you know, doc, my vision went, I want you to decide for me what's best for me. So there are both sides. There are some patients who want to be very involved and share in the decision-making process. And then there's some other patients who just want you to take charge. And I think as the physician, you have to know when to do, when to do just what they ask you to. And then also to hold back and say, you know, I need for you to share in this decision-making because then that will gain some of their, uh, not more trust in those cases, but it'll give them some, if you will, skin in the game, and they'll say, you know, I've decided to do this with you, and then that way they um, don't want to let you down, and it becomes a team effort, I find, when I you know, collaborate with my patients in their care. Yeah, and I think we have one advantage in our field, which is these um, beautiful images that we can show, right? On the monitor right there for the patient, we can show them the disease, we can show them the severity of their disease relative to normal images. And I do think that helps to um, educate the patient and that in turn gets them engaged and committed uh, to what it takes to get the best outcomes. Well, thanks so much for sharing that experience. And I'll now hand it over to Jenny, who's gonna talk about seeking a higher standard of care and these are the advances in therapy for DRDME. Thank you, Carl. 2021 is really an exciting time because we have so many new treatments that are coming out, some with extended treatment intervals, others that address more pathophysiological targets that are different from just anti-VEGF. And then we're also learning more about the benefit of corticosteroids for patients with diabetic retinopathy. Let's hear from our patient first about her experiences about treatments for her diabetic retinopathy and her macular edema. You know, he's like, you need more time to see if that eye is going to become normal again. And if it doesn't, there's no need unless we absolutely positively have to do laser, then we will move on to the injections. And my eyes are very sensitive to the ILEA medicine to when it wears off. So when most people can go eight weeks to 12 weeks, I'd go every four weeks. So he, he took the time to figure out the best timeline with me as to when I needed the injections each time. Because nobody wants to go once a month, but if your medicine starts wearing off, then it starts getting, you start getting nervous and things get, start getting weird. And even to this day now, he'll tell me four to six weeks you choose. And I'm like, see you in four weeks. Like, because it makes me feel more comfortable and it makes me feel better. And he really wants me to feel comfortable doing these things in his office. So I feel like he gives me all the choice in the world. I mean, obviously I can't say, don't stick any needles in my eye, but cure it. <laughs> that would make it, that's not something he can do, but he works above and beyond to make sure that his treatment plan for me and my treatment plan for myself stay on the same road. And it makes me not want to avoid his appointments. So now, I it looks like I'm looking through a spider web in that eye, but I've trained my eyes. The lines are small now, they're not big. So I've trained my eyes to kind of look 
through the pinholes a little bit. So that's how I can get up to 20, 25 in that eye now. This, you're not expecting it. You have nothing to prepare you for the slap in the face that you may wait. I'm going to wake up and, oh gosh, I can't see a spot. Or, and then sometimes you go to sleep and you wake up and that spot's back. And that's so weird. It, no one can explain to you. There's not a set process of how this happens. You know, that first, first you're going to start seeing a little blurry and then you're going to see double or then you're going to see that everything that comes it happens when it just happens and you have no preparation for it and that's what's super scary for me is just that I'm I like I like being planned and I can't plan if I'm going to wake up one morning and have a bleed in my eye which will take weeks to um it'll take weeks to dissipate to where I can see again um I travel a lot for work and uh me and my husband are both gone doing your eye injections is not something you can do just me taking the day off will has to take the day off as well um and then the rest of the day i'm i'm shot until that night because they also use a, a betadine or like a little i think it's betadine that they put a dot over where they're going to inject to try and stop Make sure you don't get an infection. Well, that doesn't belong in your eye. <laughs> so even though Dr. Wyckoff will give me um, like an aspirin for the eye drop after, it's still my whole day is gone. It's blurry and it's like sandpaper sometimes. So some, some days after my injections, I can't close or open my eyes. Like I, if I close them, they just burn. Open them, they just burn burn so will has to be there my husband has to have the whole day off just as well as me having to have the whole day off because I'm literally he's my seeing eye dog that day you know and sometimes there are there can be a small air bubble that comes in through the injection which is absolutely normal and it will leave a perfectly circular black dot in the middle of your eye and it always 24 hours later it's gone but it can be really hindering. So I have to make sure that our entire schedules are completely changed for that day. And, you know, any errands that I would have to run or anything that my children would have had to do back then before they went off to college. It could, it could be a lot because it's a 24 hour, it's two seconds in the doctor's office and a 24 hour recovery time from sometimes the burning and the stinging and the blurry vision and the all of that stuff no i'd love for the longevity of it to be longer to where instead of every four weeks eventually it can be every six months you know if if how long the dosing would last i don't have any necessarily problems with the injection that day i mean i'm kind of down for the count that day because it's like looking underwater the medicine if it's correct it kind of floats around in your eyes for the first day and it's a little weird but at least then i know it's working it i would just say the only thing i would hope for would be you know an extended one where it just goes a lot longer than four weeks i think everything else it's been great for me and it really has taken me from severe to stable for five years and that's hard to do as bad as my eyes were 
So Carl and Charlie, are Leslie's experiences typical of the patients in your practice in terms of her treatments for her macular edema and diabetic retinopathy? I know this patient well, so I'll speak first. Certainly there's a, there's a, there's sort of a, uh, there's a spectrum of how much treatment different patients need. Obviously earlier in the disease course, when we catch patients with early DME or even early PDR, many of those patients can receive you know, fewer treatments than patients with more advanced disease. Carl spoke to that data earlier. Um, our patient here definitely falls on one end of that spectrum where she has required fairly intensive treatment over many years to maintain um, a good vision in her, in her better eye and useful vision in her, in her worse eye. So there's certainly a spectrum and maintaining patient compliance along that journey is a challenge because it's a lot for for people of any age, but especially for working age people like our patient here to be able to come into clinic so frequently to receive the injections and treatments that they need. Yeah, I was surprised, you know, that she wanted to be treated on a monthly basis when given the option of extending her doses. Carl, do you find this in your patients as well, or do your patients prefer to try to extend more? Well, like you said, it's it's the gamut. Um, you know, this patient, um, there's a few pertinent aspects to her presentation. First of all, for many, many years, and she had diabetes from the age of five, for many, many years, she ignored um, her eye care, maybe even her medical care, and she advanced to a high level of retinopathy. So Charlie was treating both the proliferative disease and the diabetic macroedema, and uh, because it was caught late, it requires a lot of intensive treatment. And and she was a, a bit scared straight when she had her first vitreous hemorrhage. And, um, and that frightened her and that got her motivated and really helped to turn things around. And I'm sure Charlie played a big role in helping to turn things around for her. So, um, you know, different things motivate different patients. Uh, for her, it was um, becoming um, educated in what was happening and how to best manage it. And Charlie said, look, you know what, this is what it takes. Uh, frequent regular treatments to get the best vision outcome and she was very adherent with it and she she bought into that and she's been really good ever since I at first I would have predicted she would have been you know trouble with compliance and and intermittent therapy and, and us not being able to get a good outcome but um, I was very impressed with the way Charlie's been able to bring her into it and I think the SDM concept um, is is what we're seeing Absolutely. You know, I think the fear of the visual loss um, really motivated her. And then the fact that she trusts Charlie, I think that's a huge, huge factor there and that she sees the effectiveness of the therapy. So I think those two paired together are really reeling her in. And I think that's why she's just reluctant to extend her intervals. Is that correct, Charlie? Yeah. And I think you summarized it perfectly. I think her ability to notice the change in her vision when she goes for an extended period of time between injections has really helped with compliance, right? When patients notice a symptomatic difference when they get treatment versus when they don't, it really obviously allows for improved compliance. And she notices that. I mean, I'm in the point now with this patient where I say, look, you pick your interval. You've been at four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, and she notices it begin to wear off and the symptoms return. So it really sort of drives her compliance for, for what her comfort level is extending the interval. You know, I have patients that, oh, sorry. I was going to say the challenge 
is that sometimes we're faced to recommend treatment. Let's say it's panretinal laser for high-risk characteristics PDR in patients with good vision, you know, to prevent vision loss, prevent the complications of PDR. And that's a, that's a harder uh, type of um, treatment uh, to offer patients because they were not gonna, they're not going to recognize immediate benefit. And I think, Carl, that's where uh, the pictures really make a difference. When we show them the picture of the NVD, the size on the color photograph, and I also do OCTA where you can see the vessels quite nicely. And I think when they see that and you show them that, hey, this was not there before and it's there now, and they see that difference, they get it and they want to get treatment. And then I immediately get another picture when it's gone to show them the difference. And then just as you had said earlier, I think the pictures are really, really helpful in helping draw these patients in to becoming engaged in their treatment and taking part in the SDM. And it really makes them compliant and very careful to follow up you know, with you. The last point I'd make about this patient's treatment in particular was to Carl's point, I, I actually did perform PRP in one of the eyes. So early on in her treatment course, high-risk PDR, young patient, I truthfully was worried about compliance. And so I, I recommended PRP in one eye and we discussed the, the sort of risks and benefit of that and proceeded. And she noticed sort of acute visual changes that she has noticed ever since that PRP. And once we placed that in one eye, we decided collectively based on sort of her very clear input that we would not do PRP in her fellow eye I was still a little scared about compliance there, but she's been very compliant. And I, it's, it's amazing how, how symptomatic she became acutely after the PRP. So it is very important that we, that we do discuss the side effects of both options, the medication, the lasers, and then of course, combination therapy with patients, because there, there are pluses and minuses of, of all of the approaches. Great. Thank you. Let's move on now to some of the new treatments here. And so the question comes, can we safely extend the intervals between injections? So let's look at some of the data to answer this question. So you recall from the DRCR protocol I that anti-VEGFs were really shown to be more effective than laser or steroid therapy when given upfront. And you can see from this graph that the anti-VEGFIs really improved quite nicely and very early on uh, as compared to the steroid shown here or the laser eyes shown here. And you can see the steroid eyes initially had a response to the, the treatment with an improvement in vision, but then subsequently the vision dropped. And this was really due to the presence of cataracts, the development of cataracts. Uh, and subsequently following the cataract surgery, the vision increased, but it didn't increase as well for the entire group as it did for the eyes that were given anti-VEGF alone. And so that's why we really prefer to do anti-VEGFs over to corticosteroids as a first-line treatment. And then again, when we look at the laser arm, we see that although there was an increase in the visual acuity, it really wasn't significant early on. And subsequently, when deferred ranibizumab was then added on to that initial laser treatment arm, you see that there was a rise in visual acuity. But the rise in visual acuity was significantly lower than the eyes that were initially treated with anti-VEGF. So I think we've seen over and over in multiple studies that anti-VEGFs really give us the best burst in visual acuity that we can get in terms of a treatment for diabetic macular edema. And then in terms of the number of injections, as Carl alluded to earlier, the higher the number of injections that are given, the more likely you are to get an improvement. And I think this speaks to the fact that very often 
patients are undertreated. So it's really important to follow up the patients and to really treat in a very close interval and follow them up just as closely. So if we're looking at the different anti-VEGFs that exist, we wonder, well, is there a difference between them? And really for diabetes, it's really the only disease where we see a significant difference based on what the visual acuity is. And this was shown in protocol T. So when we look at the results shown on the graph, we see that for patients whose visual acuity was good, there really was no significant difference in the visual acuity outcomes between bevacizumab, aflibercept, or ranibizumab. However, when we look at the patients who started with the worst visual acuity, that is 2050 to 2320, we see that there is a difference between the three groups and that for this group, the eyes that were treated with aflibercept initially did better than the eyes that were treated with bevacizumab or ranibizumab. However, at the end of the two years, there was no significant difference between the ranibizumab and the flibercept eyes, although there was still a difference between the flibercept eyes and the bevacizumab-treated eyes. If we look here now, we can see that the response to the drug does differ for the three drugs. And we can see that a flibercept reduced the central retinal thickness more significantly than the other two agents up to, again, two years as shown here. At the end of five years, you begin to see, however, that these are all coalescing in terms of the uh, change in the visual acuity, and there are many reasons for that. Let's shift now to looking at high-dose-aflibercept. There's a study known, the Photon study, and in this study, patients are being randomized to receive a high dose of aflibercept every 12 weeks following loading, or to receive the regular aflibercept dose every eight weeks after their loading doses, or high aflibercept dosing every 16 weeks after a loading dose. And this is a non-inferiority study comparing these three groups. This study is currently still being done and the completion date is projected to be May of 2023. And the primary endpoint is looking at the best corrected visual acuity from baseline at week 48. What about other ways to deliver drug? Is there a way that we can achieve durability of treatment by using some of our existing drugs? And the answer is yes. We know from the age-related macular degeneration trials that the PDS implant can deliver ranibizumab over a longer duration of treatment, and that retreatment is needed on average at about really eight months duration. So it's a really long-acting delivery of drug, which was proven to be effective and safe for macular degeneration. So in the Pavilion study and in the Pagoda study, this same PDS device is being used to see whether it is effective for eyes with diabetic retinopathy that is non-proliferative in the Pavilion study, and then for eyes with center-involved diabetic macular edema in the Pagoda study. And these uh, studies are currently ongoing, and the projected completion dates are January of 2023, Pavilion, and October of 2022 for Pagoda. And I think, you know, this implant will offer yet another option for our patients with diabetic macular edema and diabetic retinopathy in terms of longer duration of treatment. Um, I'd like to ask though, Carl and Charlie, if you're concerned with using a PDS device in a patient with diabetes in terms of maybe potential risk for higher infection rates or other complications compared to AMD patients. 
that, that is a concern um, with regards to compliance with follow-up. So the beauty of this implant is it's going to give you that sustained delivery of anti-VEGF, which a lot of our diabetic retinopathy patients would benefit from. That will help lower their level of retinopathy and minimize the vision loss associated with DME. Um, so it's it, in many ways ideally suited um, to treat diabetic retinopathy and related problems. However, because of that device, uh, there can be issues um, having it under the conjunctiva. The conjunctiva can erode, it can be a setup for infection and so forth. So I wouldn't consider using um, this approach if the patient hasn't proved to be compliant with follow-up. Um, so uh, it's not something you're going to introduce right away from the get-go of DME treatment or diabetic retinopathy treatment. You're going to be treating those patients, you're going to see how they do, you're going to make sure they respond, and then you're going to introduce this in a patient like Charlie's where they needed very frequent treatment as an alternative to come into the office and getting uh, injections every month or two, let's say. But they have to prove to be reliable with follow-up because even though they may not need injections, they still need office visits at this time to monitor the device in the eye. Charlie? Yeah, I see this as a light down the road for patients. You know, it really is a challenge to maintain repeated injections essentially indefinitely for all of these exudative retinal diseases. And so to have this option now for patients, hopefully if it's commercialized, will be invaluable. Not because every patient's going to get it, but because there's hope there. Because you can say to patients at the beginning, look, we're going to give you shots for now, but down the road, there's a device that we can think about using in you if you're responding well and that's something you want to do. So it'll be really nice to have a new opportunity that, that, that allows a durable treatment option in the right patient population. And I agree with Carl on all of his thoughts on, on how he would select who those ideal patients might be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, it's going to be a choice that I reach for before I reach for a steroid in a patient who needs repeated treatment or who uh, really has a high treatment burden. And then secondly, I think it'll be really a neat way, if you will, provided the studies pan out in Pavilion, for really decreasing the DRSS level and supplying that anti-VEGF to keep that level low if we need it. Because uh, that's always the question. Do you keep injecting a patient? to decrease their level of DRSS and what's the risk of that. So it'll be exciting to see what the PDS proves in uh, DI, uh, diabetic retinopathy. Now, brolucizumab is another interesting drug. Uh, brolucizumab is a very small single-chain antibody fragment, and it has a very high equivalent molar dose when we compare it to other drugs like ranibizumab, oflibercept, or bevacizumab, as you can see here. Uh, but as you know, brolucizumab has been linked to increased risks of intraocular inflammation and particularly retinal vasculitis in patients with age-related macular degeneration, which limited its widespread use. So in diabetic retinopathy, the Kite and Kestrel studies were done using brolucizumab. And these were phase three studies uh, that were done and, and included approximately 900 patients total. And in Kite and in Kestrel, Brolucizumab was compared to a flibercept, two milligrams dosed every eight weeks. And in Kite, the brolucizumab was a six milligram dose uh, that was given with five loading doses 
and then extension. And in Kestrel, it was either a three or a six milligram uh, dose after five loading doses, again, given a particular uh, specified protocol, which allowed for extension. And we can see here that in Kite and in Kestrel, that the primary endpoint was met. The, basically, that brolucizumab was non-inferior to a flebrocept, despite this longer duration of dosing. And I found that this was rather exciting to me as well, because this is yet another drug that can also be given at extended dosing intervals uh, compared to having to be given uh, every eight weeks in terms of a flebrocept. And perhaps uh, also interesting here when we look at it, we see that the anatomic results using the six milligrams of brolucizumab was actually superior to a flebrocept dose two milligrams in kite. And so we see that this drug really does dry the retina up more significantly than the existing drug of flebrocept that it was compared to. When we look here on these graphs, we can also see specifically the percentages of eyes that achieved a certain level of thinness, that is a central subfield thickness of less than 280 microns at week 32 and then again at week 52. And this was significantly higher for the brolucizumab eyes as compared to the aflibercept eyes. In terms of safety, of course, this is really you know, where we have to consider whether we're gonna use this drug or not. Uh, we can see that the rates of endophthalmitis were similar, but the one that we really are concerned about is this intraocular inflammation. And when we look at that, we see that the rates of the brolucizumab six milligrams was 3.7%, and with the three milligram, it was 4.7% and you in Kestrel. And this compares to 0.5% for Flebrocept. So it's significantly greater as we would have expected knowing the AMD trials. And in Kite, again, the rates were similar to the Flebrocept in that arm of the study. Now, when we look at the inflammation, we wanna know, well, you know, what percent of this was that retinal vasculitis? Because that's really the visual disabling uh, part and the part that will damage the retina. And in this study, we see that there was a rate of 05 to 1.6% for the brolucizumab compared to none for a flebrocept in Kestrel. And so we have to, again, I think, look at this very carefully uh, when we're considering this drug in treatment for eyes with diabetic macular edema, because this can be visually disabling. So I'd like to ask both of you now, you know, how do you weigh this in your armamentarium when you're trying to consider treatment for a patient with DME that you're trying to help preserve vision or improve vision? What I was gonna say is, I think the efficacy results of bolicizumab and DME look, look really good because a flibrocept we, we have as the best drying drug for DME get the best vision outcomes for patients with more severe DME. And this drug works as well or better. Um, better drying does usually translate into better vision outcomes, at least for some of our patients. So I think it'd be really useful to have this drug. Now, of course, uh, these are the results of the pivotal study at one year, the primary endpoint. And um, we'll see this go through the process. It's gonna be filed and it's not FDA approved yet, but if it is, um, I think it's going to have a role in DME. I think its safety profile looks slightly better than the uh, WetMD study. In fact, if it kite was particularly good here, um, the rates, as you mentioned, of retinal vasculitis with vascular occlusions really only see in a few patients. Um, and for some reason, it's better. Now, maybe that's by chance. We don't know. Uh, we'll know in practice. But um, 
I think the safety profile is adequate enough to uh, potentially see this come to the market. Um, I'd like that. I'd like to have another option, another anti-VEGF, and, and you're going to talk about others to come that might be even more promising. So uh, that's going to play into the decision making. Thank you, Charlie. Yeah, Jenny, I, you know, the, the drawing ability of Rolexizumab has been repeatedly demonstrated and is very impressive. Um, you know, the challenge here is the safety data, and I, I find it hard to incorporate this medication into my practice currently in wet AMD, and I, I would have the same challenges in, in diabetic macular edema. You know, I think there are certain select patients that may be valuable, and as long as the patients are well-educated about their risk profile here, but I think to move this into a, into a legitimate clinically uh, a useful um, treatment paradigm, we need more information about who the patients are that are likely to get this. Um, um, terrible potential side effects so that we can avoid giving it to those patients. Right. You know, and, and I think when it hits the real world, sometimes you get more cases and there are higher exposure rates and we may see higher or maybe potentially lower. Maybe it'll look more like kite than it does Kestrel. But I think you're, uh, both of you are right. You could go either way on this drug. And I think it's really going to require shared decision making. You know, you're going to have to discuss this with the patient who has to understand, and then whether they're a risk taker or not, and depending upon the thickness of their retina, how much drying effect more we need than what we're able to get is going to drive the decision uh, there. So let's turn now to another uh, new treatment. This is an antibody biopolymer conjugate, which has very, very long um, longevity in terms of binding VEGF. And basically, it uses an IgG antibody which is bind, bound to a biopolymer, uh, which has basically, uh, it's called a Zwitterian. So it has like a positive and a negative uh, portion in the uh, drug. And basically it has a very high ocular durability and rapid systemic clearance if it gets there. And it results in improved bioavailability of the drug. And it's optically clear, it's injected into the vitreous like all our other drugs, and it causes a very rapid response. And you can see here in a phase 1b study for diabetic macular edema that this drug was given at three times baseline and then loading for a total of three doses early on a month apart. And then no other treatment was given basically out to one year except for an average one more treatment. So basically three loading, one more shot, and durability for treatment of DME, basically that the edema did not require any further treatments. So this, to me, when I looked at this, I was, I was quite surprised, you know, that 90% of patients could receive two or fewer retreatments in year one. I don't think we have any drug that has achieved this in diabetic macular edema to date. And depending upon the safety data, this really has the possibility of being a game changer. And Glimmer and Gleam are the phase three studies that are currently comparing the KSI 301 with the Flebrocept and a sham injection is needed in these patients who are treatment naive with DME. So um, your reactions to this new drug? I agree with your comments, Jenny. You know, uh, the challenge here though, though, is that this is of course phase 1B data that's uncontrolled and actually still an ongoing study. It's amazing how many phase three programs are ongoing with this fascinating, extremely promising molecule with no complete data set yet. There's nothing has ever happened like this in retina before. So I really do look forward to the phase three data. I think guide us 
on how this medicine will compare with our current standard of care in diabetes, which is really a flipper step for the reasons that you and Carl have, have beautifully pointed out. But I am very hopeful that this will help push the durability envelope. There is certainly a huge unmet need for that. Yeah, KS yeah I was going to say KSI 301 does look to be uh, considerably more durable than the drugs we've been using for sure. Um, but you've got others uh, that are promising, especially in the durability department, that are, uh, are also going to come about and likely be in our hands soon. But Charlie's right, this jump from a phase one to a phase three. Um, and so we have limited data. But um, how we think this might um, benefit our patients is because this large molecule basically has, uh, at least in animal models, at least double the half-life of the types of anti-VEGS we've been using before. And that's why we're looking at greater durability here. Exactly. And, you know, we're not really discussing genetic therapies, but uh, this is kind of, you know, on the spectrum towards that longer longevity. So now the question, you know, I'm going to throw out there is, can we obtain a more durable response by attacking other pathophysiological targets aside from just VEGF? So one of these new drugs that's uh, in development and actually has been studied is an anti-VEGF and an anti-angiopoietin drug. This is known as ferisimab. So why block angiopoietin-2? Well, angiopoietin-1 is a vascular stabilizer, and angiopoietin-2 destabilizes this, and it competitively inhibits the same receptor that ANG1 binds. So when you uh, bind ANG2 to this receptor known as the TIE2 receptor, it upregulates the signal and makes the eye more susceptible to VEGFA and leads to angiogenesis. So it makes sense to block ANG2. This bispecific antibody known as ferisimab has been studied in the phase three Yosemite and Rhine studies. And if you, as you see here, the ferisimab was given at six milligrams every eight weeks, and this was compared to ferisimab six milligrams given in a personalized treatment interval, and this was compared to a flibercep two milligrams dosed every eight weeks. And without going into the specifics of the study, the primary endpoint was really looking to see whether this bispecific antibody dosed every eight weeks, essentially, after loading, or dosed at a personalized treatment interval after loading, was similar to a flibercept. And the primary endpoint actually was an average of the three last uh, measurements of the visual acuity around the one-year uh, endpoint. So what did that look like? Well, we can see here that ferisimab was shown to be as effective as the flibercept in terms of the mean change in visual acuity by that week 52 endpoint mark, which was averaged. And this was true for the Yosemite as it was in the Rhine study. In terms of the drying effect of ferisimab, the mean change in the central subfield thickness and the OCT was actually also significant and effective with regards to comparison to a flibercept. And in fact, in, it was actually uh, better at drying than a flibercept in the Yosemite study as shown here and a little bit better also than in the Rhine study. Let's turn now to corticosteroids. You know, in some patients, we can't get an adequate response to VEGF, and we know that corticosteroids attack a different part of the mechanism that leads to diabetic retinopathy, so it makes sense to consider corticosteroid agents. 
As shown in this graph, you can see that the corticosteroids obviously not only affect inflammation, but also inhibit certain cytokines and inhibits leukostasis and enhances the tight junctions. So it makes sense to consider using a corticosteroid in patients who have diabetic macular edema and even other forms of diabetic retinopathy. So what do we know about corticosteroids in the treatment of DME? We know that intravitreal triamcinolone results in improved visual acuity when added to prompt laser therapy and pseudophagic eyes for at least two years, as was shown in protocol I. However, corticosteroids have side effects that were well known, including glaucoma and cataract progression in phagic patients, and of course, also the risk of endophthalmitis. What about sustained release steroids? We know that the intravitreal dexamethasone implant resulted in improved visual acuity, again in eyes with pseudophagic uh, status, and this was um, maintained for 39 months as shown in the Mead study. Complications were related again to side effects of steroids, and these included IOP elevation of 10 or more millimeters of mercury in 85 to 96% of patients in the dexamethasone groups. When added to ranibizumab in the DRCR protocol U study, there was really no significant effect of best corrected visual acuity by using dexamethasone. What about the fluocinolone implant? Well, in the FAME study, the fluocinolone implant was shown to improve visual acuity and to have a maintained improvement in visual acuity for up to 36 months. However, the downside was that the phacic eyes 82% of them required cataract surgery because of the high rate of progression of cataracts. And in also in FAME, it was shown that 5% of participants needed glaucoma surgery because of the IOP increasing effect of the fluocinolone. So corticosteroids are a two-edged sword. They can improve the vision. They can result in decreased thickness of the retina, but they have this problem of causing cataracts and glaucoma. So Carl, I'd like to ask you, because you wrote a consensus expert white paper report on the role of corticosteroids in DME, can you frame this for us in terms of how you use it and what are the best patients to use this on? Sure, I can certainly comment. And you know, everyone has a slightly different take on um, when corticosteroids are most useful in the setting of diabetic macodema. But um, when we got a group together and tried to come to some consensus, what we found is that one, steroids are considered more or less routinely um, for suboptimal responders. So uh, patients that are getting anti-VEGF that have incomplete drying, and that could be you know, getting to the strongest ones that we have, a flibrocep now, and we'll have new ones in the future. But if you're not able to get the macular dry and get the visual acuity as, as good as you're hoping it to be, it makes sense to switch. And when do we trigger that switch? Well, it could be four injections, could be six injections, could be more of anti-VEGF before making the switch to steroid. And that was kind of the, what most people thought, four to six before you got a sense for how well the anti-VEGF is working. And then the other type of patient, and actually the one I, I find myself using it the most, um, such as a dexamethasone implant to get four months of durability or so, um, is in patients somewhat similar to our, our Charlie's patient that's being interviewed here, is uh, the ones that need anti-VEGF really frequently, like every four or five weeks or so, uh, just to decrease the injection burden. It's not gonna necessarily decrease the office visit burden, but 
injection burden, patients do appreciate that if you can reduce it. Charlie, do you use steroids often in your uh, practice? I agree with the, with the points that Carl brought up. You know, I think that the use of steroids does provide extra drying capacity. I think the protocol U was invaluable towards demonstrating that. And I, I think that anatomy, there is a correlation between anatomy and long-term function, although it's not a perfect correlation and continues to be challenging when, when studying DME to, to elucid, elucidate that anatomic visual correlation. I do think it has a role. I think more importantly for me, from a mechanistic and sort of development perspective, it really points to the fact that anti-VEGF therapy is invaluable, but there are other players that are relevant. As you brought up, angiopoietin 2 is quite relevant, and there are other players as well. So the side effects of the steroids are a challenge for younger patients, especially with diabetes. For example, a patient we're managing now really doesn't want to get accelerated cataract, and so is not interested in steroids. Um, it's important to make sure that we have those conversation with patients about the risks of steroids compared to anti-VEGF injections uh, as part of the shared decision-making process, but they absolutely do play a role in my clinic. I have to say, I just wanted to say one more thing about the type of patient I would switch to the ones that needing uh, anti-VEGF frequently. That's going to change in the next couple of years. You mentioned two promising uh, drugs for DME. You mentioned KSI-301 having more durability potentially, and farisimab. Um, in the farisimab phase three studies, um, almost half the patients were able to go Q16 weeks in that PTI uh, group and still maintain those good vision gains and as good as bimonthly aflibercept. So with these anti-VEGFs looking more durable, I think they're going to be the first types of drugs we're going to turn to rather than the steroids we had had at our disposal in the past. Absolutely, Carl. And, you know, the patients who have more chronic DME are the ones who are more driven, so to speak, by other cytokines that are non-VEGF dependent. So are you more likely in patients with chronic DME who have never been treated to go ahead and switch even earlier to the steroid or to use steroids primarily? I, I actually still try the anti-VEGFs first, and I'll sometimes be surprised and see a good effect, but you're right more chronic disease. It's going to be harder to treat in general, and I think we're likely to see a greater percentage of these so-called suboptimal responders. And I'll probably think about switching to a steroid sooner because of the additional mechanisms of action at play that you outlined, decrease in a number of cytokines, IL-6 and others that could be involved uh, with DME, especially more chronic DME. And I think we heard that at the ASRS this past week, there were some papers looking at some steroids uh, usage and saying that the ones that switched earlier had a better response in terms of the visual acuity, although the steroids were able to still decrease the retinal thickness to the same degree, but it was too late. So maybe if you're going to do it, you might want to consider it earlier, uh, at least until these other treatments come out. Uh, Jenny, that was a great summary of not only our existing treatments and how we use them, how they compare, but what's on the near horizon, uh, which is looking really promising to get results that could be better with efficacy and, and at, at the very least, uh, drugs or therapeutics that are looking more durable. Um, so I'm going to now hand it off to Charlie. Charlie's going to talk about patient considerations in newer therapies, the sort of practical side of advances in the therapy for DRDME. Charlie? Thanks, Carl. Yeah, excellent discussion so far, Jenny and Carl. Look forward to hearing what you think about this section also. So beyond visual acuity, what do we know about the impact of intravitreal therapies compared to laser on other aspects of vision, right? We live in a visual world, and while 
Most of our studies are focused on best corrected visual acuity using ETDRS letters, in other words, central foveal vision. Obviously, vision has much more to do um, with peripheral vision, contrast, color vision. There's a lot of other components to our visual world that we don't assess very frequently, certainly in clinic, very, very rarely, and then in clinical trials, only sporadically. I think this this question really highlights an unmet need in the field, right? This is part of the shared decision-making process to sort of understand our patients' visual lives. It is more than just the smell and visual acuity. We all have patients with a whole host of diseases that might have good central vision and yet be complaining bitterly about their visual function. And likewise, have patients with poor central vision, but actually say they're quite functional. So there is an incomplete sort of correlation between Snellen or ETDRS best corrected vision and patients' visual lives. And it's, and it's important that we try to understand that. Here are three sort of key met, met, measures of vision that we um, occasionally think about. I'll skip to the easiest two first, color vision and contrast sensitivity. There's actually very little data on outcomes with these with anti-VEGF versus laser um, treatments. Certainly patients will, in many cases, notice changes in color vision and contrast sensitivity after laser, but it's not really quantified very well in the modern literature. The place where we do have some prospective data is visual field analyses. We know that probably as part of the natural history of diabetic retinopathy, a meaningful proportion of patients will have loss of visual field over time. Um, um, Tom Gardner and others have sort of focused on the neurologic component of diabetes impacting the back of the eye for a long time. Again, we need more data around that, but that is a key part we think of the natural history. But on top of that, we clearly know that a complete PRP session or peripheral um, laser will cause sort of essentially immediate changes in the peripheral visual field. This was documented very clearly in the DRCRNet protocol S with an acute decrease in visual field function, whereas that visual field was relatively preserved with anti-VEGF therapy through at least, at least two years of follow-up. There was a marked difference at two years. But of interest in the protocol S data set, those patients were followed further. There was actually decline in visual field among both patient populations through the third and fourth and fifth years of follow-up. We saw that both the anti-VEGF treated patients and the previously laser treated patients experienced visual field decline, um, suggesting again that this is probably part of the natural history or maybe there was some component of undertreatment in those in those later years that drove those visual field changes. So maybe for my colleagues here, Carl and Jenny, do you guys assess visual function in your patients with diabetes through any of these quantitative measures ever in clinic? And, and if so, when do you use them? Uh, for me, uh, not formally uh, on a routine basis, that's for sure. Um, but you can get a sense by hearing from the patient, you know, I'm having trouble with constricted vision, night vision, and so forth. And um, we've evolved our treatments to help minimize the problems. Uh, although some of the visual field problems, of course, are from the underlying disease, and some could be from the therapeutics. As you mentioned earlier, pan-retinal laser photocoagulation can constrict fields. So um, I don't specifically measure it, but I take into consideration the patient needs to know that these are potential side effects of this therapy, laser versus anti-VEGF. So there's pros and cons uh, to how we manage it based on not only efficacy, but the side effect profile. 
You know, I agree with you, Carl. And, you know, unfortunately, I, too, do not measure visual field, color, vision, or contrast sensitivity on my patients. But I think it's really important. And I think if there was a way that we could measure this rather effectively and quickly and, you know, efficiently in the clinic, where we would be more likely to do this for our patients. Because as you said, it's really important. And these are the intangibles that you can't get at by just the visual acuity. Because so many times, you know, the patient says, you know, you're telling me that my vision is 20-20, but I'm telling you that I can't read well, you know, when low light uh, levels, you know, contrast is not that good, colors are washed out. And I tell them, you know, I, I hear you, I get it. I know there's more to your vision than just reading the eye chart. And the eye chart is an idealized level of vision. But right now we don't have a really good way to measure this efficiently. Great comments, so much to learn in our space still. Let's move on now and talk about two really important data sets that I think our field is still digesting. And they really revolve around the two questions shown here, which is can we prevent progression of the disease? In other words, can we prevent development of PDR? And I would add center involved DME to that list. And then secondly, can we, and maybe the question is better posed, should we be treating earlier in this disease process? And what data do we have to guide this um, discussion. And so I'll, I'll go through both of these data sets that we have and then ask for, for your input. So the, there's two trials that I mentioned. The first here is Panorama to unpack. And this is the trial that had the data first that was public, and therefore we'll talk about them in that order. This was a phase three trial involving patients with NPDR, so no PDR and no center-involved DME. In other words, they had excellent vision. You had to be 2040 or better to get into the trial. And on average, patients were about 2025 at baseline. But sort of what we think of as this, as this quote unquote high risk NPDR. And it was a phase three trial involving 402 patients. They were randomized equally into three different groups. One third of the patients got sham injections. Um, and then the other two thirds received a flibrocept. Um, one of them received a flibrocept every other month, every eight weeks after five, five monthly loading doses. And the other arm received um, every 16 week of flibrocept. This is the longest sort of fixed interval dosing strategy we've seen in, in DR up to this date. Um, and these patients had, had a few loading doses at the beginning. And the primary outcome from Panorama, critical that mention what this is, because this is different than the other trial we'll talk about. The primary endpoint was looking at the proportion of patients improving on their diabetic retinopathy severity score levels. The secondary endpoints were to also look at the development of DME and PDR, the sort of clinically relevant endpoints. So two slides highlighting the, the key take-home message from Panorama. Um, uh, the first on the left related to the primary endpoint, we saw at weeks 24, 52, and 100, sort of very consistent, meaningful improvements in the diabetic retinopathy severity score levels with a flibrocept dosing compared to sham. What's interesting here is if you look in the, in the, in the brown bars, you can see very consistent outcomes there. This is with every 16 week dosing. So this is the first time that we're seeing that three shots a year, that's what every 16 week dosing is. Three shots a year can essentially stabilize your diabetic retinopathy severity level after a series of loading doses where you get marked improvement in, the, in a large percentage of patients, over 60% of patients, quite meaningful data. I think three shots a year is actually clinically doable for a lot of patients. 
It's interesting though, if you look at the lighter, the, the, the light blue bars on the right, you see sort of an up-down appearance and, and, and it's important to work through what that is. So through week 52, these patients in light blue received every other month dosing. And then in the second year of the trial, they transitioned to as needed retreatment. And what this suggests, and we've seen this in other data sets as well, is that when we treat patients less frequently, we saw this, for example, in the open label extension study following the ride and rise phase three programs, there is a tendency for a meaningful proportion of these patients to regress and experience retinopathy severity worsening. So be careful if you're not going to treat these patients on a fixed interval that you may um, experience worsening over time. But then actually more relevant from a clinical practice perspective is the graph on the right, because we don't really use diabetic retinopathy severity scale levels in a nuanced way in clinical practice. We think of sort of NPDR and PDR and maybe some subcategorization within them. But what we do think about on the right is the development of these clinically relevant endpoints, and that is proliferative diabetic retinopathy summarized in this trial program as vision-threatening complications or VTCs, and also center-involved DNE. And you can see that with a flibercept treatment, there was a meaningful, clinically relevant reduction in the development of these PDR and DME endpoints between a, essentially about a 70 to 80% risk reduction with consistent aflibercept dosing. Now, of course, the numbers aren't zero with aflibercept dosing. You still are seeing some breakthrough disease, and we've seen that in other data sets as well. So even if you are treating these patients early, you have to watch them carefully because some of them can have progressive disease. And on the flip side, in the sham arm, there's certainly a meaningful portion of patients that are not progressing to proliferative disease or DME through two years of follow-up. About 50% progress and about 50% do not. And this leaves us with the clinical dilemma of what to do. The other point here now about panorama is to separate out the PDR events on the left, vision-threatening complications, and the center-involved DME events on the right. And you can see that, that there's a separation in the curves here with a flibercept being protective in both of these data sets. It's interesting, if we look at real-world data sets, we've seen that it's interesting. Some patients go on to develop PDR, some go on to develop DME, and some develop both. But there does seem to be a certain patient population that is prone to getting these different phenotypes. And we don't really understand yet at a clinical level who those patients are that are more likely to get one of these manifestations of diabetic retinopathy than the other. The last point about panorama is that while on average the visual acuity changes were no different between the arms, between baseline and one year and two years, when you look at an a um, area under the curve analysis, there actually was a statistically significant difference in the outcomes at both one year and two years. This was a pre-specified secondary endpoint from Panorama. You saw a more visual gain, if you will, in the aflibercept treated patients than the sham patients. And I certainly don't want to make more of this than it deserves, right? These patients all began with excellent vision. They ended with excellent vision on average but there was a one to two letter difference on average when you look at area under the curve. And the argument here is that patients don't really care what their vision is on a given minute. They care what their vision is over time. And so if we begin to look at AUC analyses, that may help us give us a better feeling for how these patients are experiencing their visual world over time, not just a given time point. So the second data set that really had very analogous outcomes was the DRCRNet protocol W. 
This was a similarly sized trial, 399 eyes. A key difference in enrollment here was that they included level 43s. They included more mild levels of diabetic retinopathy in addition to levels 47 and 53. And then their primary endpoint was not DRSS changes, but it was the development of these clinically relevant endpoints that we discussed. Center-involved DME with vision loss here. That's a key distinction versus panorama. And also PDR. And the two arms here, the patients were randomized to were either sham or again, a flibercept, essentially with every four-month dosing through two years after loading doses. And the primary outcome data is shown here. On the left, you see the combined outcome of development of PDR or DME with vision loss. And you see very similar proportions of patients as what we observe in Panorama. You're seeing up to almost 40% of patients in the sham arm developing these clinically relevant endpoints at two years, compared to about um, 10 to 15% of the aflibercept-dose patients. However, just as we saw in Panorama, there was no difference in vision between these outcomes in, in, the, in the outcomes of these patients through, through two years. Although I don't think anyone expected meaningful average changes in vision, because remember, they were essentially 20-20 in this population at baseline. So before we go on to some newer agents looking at the management of DR, Jenny and Carl, have the, have the Panorama and DRCRW protocols impacted your discussions with patients or your management strategies in any way? They have, uh, Charlie. You know, there are patients who have very severe NPDR where I will have this discussion with them. And I think the, the crux of the matter is exactly what you were discussing earlier, and that is there's more to visual acuity than just visual acuity. So although there wasn't a change in visual acuity found in protocol W, I think, you know, looking at panorama and analyzing the area under the curve, and then looking at other measures of acuity, that there is a difference that you that is intangible when you try to preserve where they're at. And then secondly, you know, depending upon how severe their NPDR is, their risks can be as high as 50% for progression in a year. And so if you then look at your curve and you look at the, the patients who were treated with the anti-VEGF and you compare it to the sham and you take the difference in those numbers, you can get a number needed to treat. And if I did the math right on Panorama, I think it was around a 20% uh, difference. And so you do the inverse, so you would need to treat five. For every five that you treat, you will save one person from hitting that, that complication of PDR or, or DME. And in Protocol W, with their slightly different endpoint, I believe the difference uh, was about 35% or so, so that for every three you treat, you would save one patient. Um, and I think that, that, you know, is a risk benefit again, and again, takes into account shared decision-making with your patient. Uh, but that's just the general number. So then if you drill down and you look at the data and you get the very severe ones, maybe the number needed to treat is smaller. And so again, um, I discuss it with my patients, but so far, quite honestly, not a lot have decided to go with this. And again, I only present it to the ones with very severe NPDR. I'm not advocating for this yet, and I'm waiting for the four-year results of Protocol W to come around. Great comments. Carl, anything different you do up there in Philadelphia? Well, I'm going to agree with Jenny. Uh, it's, uh, it's an important dialogue to have. It's a very, they're, they're, these are powerful results, um, but they take doing injections on a regular basis and perhaps ongoing 
we don't know for sure, for years to maintain the benefit because it's not a permanent resetting of the thermostat for better levels of DR in many of our patients. Um, and so now you're talking about having a dialogue with a patient by saying, we want to start injections. Um, so we are doing something invasive, albeit with a good safety profile, it's not risk-free. And uh, knowing that we can get good results with when a vision-threatening complication does occur, if caught early, um, some would say it doesn't justify the numbers needed to treat. And, um, and I think patients, when they have good vision, no symptoms, and even if they're told, and even if they see images that say, look, uh, you know, we can make you better by getting injections now, or we can react to problems when they occur and hope that we get good results, most of the time they're still choosing to just watch, wait, and then treat. Um, so if we had non-invasive ways, if you had a pill or an eye drop, I don't think there'd be any hesitation. Uh, but unfortunately, um, you know, the devil's in the details. You need the three loading doses. You need injections every two, four months or so, and you need to probably continue it, uh, but we'll need more follow-up. And maybe with longer-acting drugs, and I know you're about to touch upon this, we can get away with even less frequent injections. That could shift us towards thinking about or patients wanting to get these treatments uh, proactively. Effectively, that's what we're talking about here. I do want to add one quick thing, and that is uh, we have to remember in the studies that the patients in both arms were seen very frequently. And so the onset of the vision-threatening complication was picked up right away. And so it's a little bit different from clinical practice where we don't see them as often as we would have in a clinical trial. And so maybe they wouldn't have gotten the treatment as early. Uh, I agree with everything you said, Carl. I agree with all the points that you both brought up. I find it fascinating to add two points there. You know, it's recent... American Society of Retina Specialist PAT survey, where they, where they, where they probe all the retina specialists across the country, what they're doing for these disease contexts. I find it fascinating that year over year, we're seeing the percentage of patients, percentage of physicians that are considering treatment in these eyes increase. The most recent PAT survey was about 35% of patients of, of physicians say that they are treating patients with NPDR without DME, at least in some circumstances. And I also agree with the concept that it's not really a question of should we treat earlier? Carl, your point is very well taken, right? If you had a 100% safe drug that was highly effective, I don't think we'd be talking about earlier treatment. I think we would all absolutely agree on it. So it's really that safety efficacy balance. And that's where the patient discussion really becomes critical. And I found these data sets really helpful in that discussion so that I'm not just guessing on what the numbers are. I can give them real data to help them make informed decisions. But I agree, what is going to move this field forward are newer agents that are more durable and potentially more effective. We've talked about both these agents already, so I'll summarize these briefly and get your input. The first year is, of course, KSI 301 that, that Jenny beautifully summarized before. There's an ongoing program called GLOW, which is a phase three trial, again, comparing sham injections to KSI 301 with dosing of up to every six months. So now instead of three times a year, you're looking at two times a year for dosing. So you're cutting that dosing down from three to two. Wonder if that would make a significant difference to, to both of my panelists. And then the second one is, of course, the port delivery system, which again, Jenny beautifully summarized before. The ongoing pavilion study is focusing exclusively on this NPDR population without DME um, with a very extended durability of anti-VEGF effect based on the the, the vascular AMD data to date. 
So I think both of these programs are likely to move our space forward. I love having more tools in the toolbox for these patients. It allows improved patient um, options and, and hopefully will just encourage them to be more engaged in their care um, over time. Do either of you think that either of these particular agents are going to sort of move that, move that needle, if you will, on the proportion of patients that are getting treated earlier? Or will it take something that's not a surgery and not an injection in the eye? I think an office-based injectable will. I'm not so sure a, a surgery and a device will. Um, that's a bigger step to take uh, for earlier intervention. But, um, you know, if this KSI program works out, for example, and we get these treatments down and maybe twice a year, that's, that's a little more attractive, and I think that will probably move things along. I agree with Carl. I would go more with the KSI, provided the safety profile continues to look good in the phase three trial. And then in terms of surgery, again, a lot of our patients aren't willing to risk surgery, the morbidity of it, even if they don't get a complication. You know, just the thought of having surgery, having to go through the surgery itself and the potential risks, I think is a bit much for them right now. All excellent points. Well, let's turn to our patient again and see what she thinks about her knowledge on diabetic retinopathy compared to other patients. And we'll also probe her on sort of her discussions with other patients and their sort of thoughts and questions about diabetic retinopathy and DME. I think I am good at describing to other people what it's like to look through my eyes because it's, you, you don't know, and I think it's important that somebody knows and somebody has a descriptive way of explaining what it's actually like to see through my eyes, whether it be to a doctor or you guys or even a friend of mine, you know, who don't even they don't even think about things sometimes. They're like, Leslie, look at this. And I'll be like, well, I can't really see that. And it's not because my eyes are dark. Like people think it's blindness is darkness. It's not. So that's why I try to explain to them. Sometimes I see things that aren't there. Sometimes I don't see things that are there. So I think I'm pretty good at being descriptive of that. And I feel like that that can be helpful to scientists or to my doctor or even to my husband, kids, and friends to understand that it's not just black that I see, you know? So I think I'm educated in that side of it, but I'm not necessarily educated on exactly the medical stuff that's going on in my eye because I trust my doctor so much. They want to know that I have gone six years and that I have stuck to my plan and put total faith in Dr. Wyckoff because there's, it's a, so much of a mental and emotional thing to go through this at my age. And most people in, want to run from it. They want to run away from Dr. Wyckoff. If I don't go get my injections, then everything's going to get better. And I, it's, I feel like my job is to let these people know that you have to follow. You have to run to him. I run to him. And they run from him. And I said, that's not, that's only going to make it worse. And you're going to get to a point where there's things that Dr. Wyckoff can't fix if you continue to not go. And I tell them, like, they'll ask me, well, does your eye do this after the injection? Yes, it does. And then they oh, I'm so comfortable knowing it's not only me. And I said, you can ask even Dr. Wyckoff these questions. He, and she's like, well, it's so different. I just had lunch couple weeks ago with one of his other patients for three hours and she's like you have no idea like 
talking to you and talking to somebody else close to my age that has gone through it, you really helped me. And I just told her it's super important not to run away because that's when you get the problems that he can't fix. You know, it's not a, he, he, he cannot promise, he can't promise ever that we won't go blind, but he, you have to, you have to stick to it. And that's really what I preach to them is how important it is not to run away from him because he's really our savior out there. Like he's, he's amazing. And we have, we're really lucky to have him because he's a very huge in the research and huge in everything else. And missing your appointment is the worst thing you can do. And that's really what I try and push to them. And I let them know you're not by yourself. We all have weird things that happen after these injections. And we all have side effects. And sometimes we think we have side effects that we may not because it's scary. Like somebody is putting needles in our eyeballs. But that's going to save your vision. Okay, Jenny and Carl. So I must admit that this patient played a special role in my clinic, actually. In, 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 in quite a few times now, I've connected patients one to another. Of course, you know, once I get bilateral sort of approval to do so, I found that really helpful, especially in these younger type one diabetics that are sort of overwhelmed because they're at a stage in their life where they're working and now they've got this massive eye problem. I see a lot of young diabetics in this situation. And, and Leslie brings out that point. It's sort of unusual, I guess, to do that. Do either of you use sort of patient education tools beyond just where you're seeing them in clinic? I actually tell my patients rather facetiously in the beginning, I say, you know, I've been injecting all morning. Have you heard anyone screaming? And then, you know, they kind of say, they kind of chuckle and say, well, no, I haven't. And I said, well, you know, um, if you want, I can have you speak to one of my other patients. So again, I get the same thing. I go to the other patient who, of course, says, oh, you know, Dr. Lim, I'd be happy to talk to the patient and tell him it doesn't hurt and, you know, I can, you can come back. And then I connect them that way. I don't send them to lunch, but I I do uh, have them talk to each other, and I find that that really, really helps uh, the patient who is having the injection for the first time. And then I also have the staff come in, the person who's going to numb up their eye with, you know, the tetracaine or whatever we're using in, in the patient, and explain to them what he or she does and that it doesn't hurt and that patients have been coming back for years so that they just don't hear it from me or my fellow or my resident. They hear it from the staff, they hear it from other patients. And I think that really helps them feel comfortable. Yeah, I have to say, I haven't sent uh, anyone to lunch yet with each other, but um, uh, keep in mind though, the waiting room is a nice chat place and uh, patients often do share their experiences. And I've had patients come in and say, oh yeah, I just spoke to someone who said the injections weren't bad and so forth, or they're they're, they're getting a benefit and that helped to reinforce things for me. You know, this patient um, really used some very key words here um, in this interview. Uh, running to the doctor, running away from the doctor. She used the word scary. Um, and these, this is exactly what every patient says, at least at some point, if not early on, uh, maybe it's ongoing. Uh, patients don't like to get injections. They quote, tolerate them well, and we all say that but they would prefer not to get them. And it takes a lot for them to come to the office and get them. It's uh, anxiety provoking. Patients say they don't sleep sometimes the night before. This patient even said, you know, the day is shot after an injection. And sometimes that's the case, the irritation. And so for them to stick with ongoing 
treatments, whatever it may be, could be, could be injections, could be laser, uh, really takes tremendous engagement. Um, and this patient has used the word trust, I used the word uh, getting to, to making sure the doctor understood me. Um, these are all very important points uh, for the patient to stay with the, with the program because that's what it takes to get long-term good outcomes. Thanks for the excellent comments. Carl, I'll turn it back over to you. Well, thank you uh, to both uh, uh, Jenny and Charlie to sharing your thoughts throughout this journey of uh, how we manage uh, diabetic retinopathy and DME. You know, the way it is now, it, yeah, it's mostly about anti-VEGF therapy. Um, with the drugs you've been using, they work well, but unfortunately the durability is limited. Um, and so therefore they're unforgiving. So when a patient embarks upon a course of therapy, if they miss visits, um, if there's lapses in treatments, they'll have setbacks in many cases and sometimes we can't recover it. And that's exactly how I say to patients, you know, stick with the program uh, to get the best vision outcomes. But it does require uh, this uh, shared decision-making process, whether it's formal, whether it's with a form, or whether we uh, spend more time uh, and uh, interact with the patient more, making sure we answer their questions. That's all key to, to buying in on a course of therapy that's going to save their vision. And a condition like this, which is uh, still a leading cause of vision loss uh, in most developed countries. And the future is bright, though, because we have effective treatments now, albeit not very durable, but we're going to have at least equally effective, if not more effective treatments, office-based injections, device delivery approaches, and therefore also capture that durability. And we're hoping that also improves our long-term vision outcomes and makes it easier for patients, decreases the burden of having to come to the office on a frequent or regular basis and being more forgiving with regards to skip visits or not having uh, the ability to get in on a frequent and regular basis. So I'm sure we're all looking forward to, to better days. And those days are in the not too distant future, literally within the next year or two for at least some of the promising therapeutics coming our way. So that ends our discussion for today. Thank you again, Charlie and Jenny, for your insights. It's been very, very valuable in patient management in this particular uh, treatment space. Uh, we hope you found this activity informative and useful for your practice. Thank you very much for participating. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash CMG 860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated.